D'Artagnan Brown is many things. Journalist, Hall of Fame musician, tech guru, and teacher, all at the same time. And he's on a quest to find sounds that heal and motivate the people. We could take it slowly, or we could get insane. This is All Things Grinnell. I'm Ben Benversi. On today's show, we're joined by D'Artagnan Brown, an Iowa musician and educator who has made a life of being good at a lot of things, weaving together careers in journalism, music, technology, and education, and making it sound good. Tanyan Brown didn't go to Grinnell, but he might as well have, and his wide-ranging skill set has served him well. A comprehensivist, as he calls it. His musical resume is certainly comprehensive, as he's found himself a spot in the Iowa Rock and Roll, Jazz, and Blues Halls of Fame. Before that, he was a young journalist at the Des Moines Register. And before all that, he was a young boy growing up in Des Moines, the son of two musicians, Ellsworth and Mary Alice Brown, from a family who found a home in Buxton, Iowa. If you don't know about Buxton, it's a historic little town in southern Iowa. It popped up in the late 1800s as a coal mining town, and it became famous for its racial integration and majority black population. By the end of the 1920s, though, it had lost all its residents. We'll get to that complicated history, but first, we talk about what D'Artagnan's been up to lately. He's a teaching artist in Des Moines area schools working with students through music and storytelling. We started talking about just how essential it is to get young people to tell their stories and how powerful it can be to share them. That's the most valuable thing you can give to a young person and the most valuable thing you can pull from a young person and let them tell their stories. Because the schools, as you may know, they, they really need help from people who are knowledgeable, who have empathy, who uh, actually kind of understand what community is all about, yeah. and and that a, a kid only gets one chance to be in fourth grade or fifth grade. You know, it's a limited amount of time we have with them. It's so important to let them know that they that their ideas matter, that their idea that their thoughts and how they express themselves matters because there's a, many things in the outside especially media environment, that are telling them that that's not true or corrupting it in some way. Yeah. I moved back to Iowa from California about four years, three years ago now. Uh I mean, for real. I used to go back and forth a lot, but now I'm actually living in Des Moines. So I've been working at middle school, Harding and and Meredith Middle School, uh, North High School. Because as a teaching artist, that's what I did in California. I come back to Iowa, and I wanted to stay uh, connected and looking at the landscape here, especially the way the legislature here in Iowa has funded the schools and treats the teachers across the state, uh-huh. it tells me that 
they're in a way trying to, in a sense, devalue what happens in a school. Mm -hmm. And so it's our job as artists and teachers to not only push back, but to give the kids what they need to be able to tell the story for themselves. Because it'll be easy to convince others once the kids speak up. Yep. They're powerful. Uh-huh. And that's been the th- my, in a sense, saving grace coming back here to Des Moines. The music business here in Central Iowa, where I've been, used to be very vital. Could be again. Right now, though, it's a little weird here, uh-huh. right? But hanging with students has been a, a joy. Uh, Des Moines schools have kids from, it, well, it's as diverse in Des Moines, Iowa, from the school system as it is in Oakland, California. Really? Yes, it is. Wow. Uh, I, every continent is is represented, and the kids I've met from Malawi, uh, from Congo, I, uh, Ivory Coast, um, as well as the kids I've met from uh, Myanmar and uh, Thailand and Vietnam, um, and then kids from Poland and kids from Ukraine. Uh-huh. It's It's... It's almost insane what they bring because they bring their their culture and their understanding of what they have had. And in most of those countries, music especially is extremely deeply embedded in culture, not just for going out on a Saturday night to dance. It's part of birth and death and everything. And they bring that. As a teaching artist, to be able to um, harvest that in a sense has – is what's making my time here in Iowa very much more bearable than it uh-huh. would be. <laughs> <laughs> Makes the winters bearable, at least. I'll tell you. So, yeah. That's good. Um, let's start the story with your family's move to, to Buxton, Iowa, long before you were even an idea in someone's head or a baby in someone's womb. Yes. Um, how did that decision to move from Virginia to Iowa change your family's life trajectory and eventually yours when it began? Oh, my Lord. Um that's kind of what the story really is, in a sense, about. Because if you, I had to go back and study a little bit about post Reconstruction or uh, post Jim or the institution of Jim Crow, and what was that like in the life of a person in Charlottesville, Virginia? Mm-hmm. Whew, that was some tough reading, because that was right in the heart of you could be lynched for just walking around at the wrong time or something. And the disenfranchisement of, of all the, of the rights that were, had had allegedly been given after the war and all that. So for them to leave that environment or to survive in that environment, first and foremost, I, I don't even know what to say about that as far as the respect and kind of the newfound kind of awe of what, they did and how they did survive but then to get a, a see a probably a sign on a post maybe or maybe a flyer saying come to Iowa because there are coal mining jobs there okay that's the probably the real reality I don't know what was in their heads and I don't see much from my when I interviewed my grandmother uh-huh. um, she doesn't really say a lot about what got them to move out mm-hmm. but I mean, to me, it's, it would be almost rather obvious that while you stay here and you can, <laughs> you can be disenfranchised completely, right. or you can move to this new place, Iowa, where the, you hear that there's uh, work and that uh, there no, there's not discrimination in the standard the way that you're used to. Right. So you grew up in Des Moines yourself. Yep. Um, because your mother wanted to return home. That's uh, right. 
I'm sure it's hard to think about because it's the only thing that you knew, but you've spent enough time in both Iowa and California to maybe have some perspective on how growing up in Iowa maybe impacted your life. Oh, great. Yes. Well, that it, the one thing for sure, Iowa being rur- sort of rural and all that, and Des Moines being the capital city. So there was a good mix of both city stuff and farm stuff in kind of my early life. My grandmother lived in Fort Dodge. So we traveled from Des Moines to Fort Dodge to see grandmother. And so that, you know, you're going through the fields. And so th- that was a good thing to understand that there wasn't just cement. And, and, you know, my grandkids live in New Jersey and Patterson, New Jersey. And eh, a couple times a year, they'll get out of the cement. Maybe see some grass. Yeah, right. So, but that's a big thing. And then the other huge, huge thing was just the fact that because Buxton was an integrated community, um, the churches weren't even segregated in that community. You could go to whatever church you wanted to. Everybody looked after each other's children. Um, It was, uh, again, that's why why they would call it a utopia, Uh because there was no personal violence being visited upon you like in Virginia. And at the same time, you could, you know, go to school and you could do whatever you you know had to do. So the fact that they were able to do that and understand that that other person, it's another human being. Right. And not only another human being, but a human being that you can deeply become involved with and love the same things that they love yeah. and really get to that real point of humanity. Uh-huh. And that's what they were able to do. Now, that changes everybody who's involved in that. So I remember when we'd go see, you know, drive out in the country to see grandma's friends or, you know, and they'd all invariably be white people. But, you know, it was like they were all brothers and sisters. Uh-huh. Now... When people talk about that Buxton experience, it's it's almost like black people got to Iowa and the sky opened up ah, and it was integrated. <laughs> Magic. <laughs> yeah, ma- exactly. No, not quite. <laughs> but I mean, that's the that's kind of the impression, and of course, the overall impression is very positive. But that positivity had to be earned. Here's, mm. and I'm just sort of coming to this realization recently. Uh, um, Rochelle Chase, a a woman, has just finished a new book about Buxton. Okay. And so when the black miners, coal miners, came to Iowa from Virginia, they were brought in not just as workers. They were also strike breakers. Mm. Right? So the Swedes, the Germans, the Norwegian guys, they were already there, right? Yeah. So when the African-Americans roll into town, wait a minute here. That's certainly not a we're glad to see you moment. Open arms. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Quite the opposite. So the labor struggles of that time, right? So they ended up working together. They eventually went back to work. And then while they're working side by side, they are talking to one another because you have to. And they find out, no matter what color they were, what ethnicity they were, that they still had a common issue as far as they were all being asked to work, what was that, 80-hour uh, weeks. Uh-huh. Right? This is like a 10-hour, 12-hour days. Yeah. So... In coal mines, no less. So that was the... To me, that's the very hard-won 
realization here. And that's why it's so even today. <laughs> even today, they do not want unity. That's why the, the forces now seem to want division so much. Mm-hmm. They're really invested in othering. Everything's an other. Uh-huh. Nobody seems to be able to find a point of solidarity. Really? Right. So that's, so that's something you see after studying labor history, you know, over the years. Yeah. And I was a journalist. I, you know, I worked for the Des Moines Register yep. for a long time. And in learning how to do real, to do good research and talk to people to, to, to reach that point where they will give you the story that you need to get from them. They have to trust. And that, I would not have been able to do that had it not been for the experience of my grandmother uh, and our family don't come in this house, she would say. Do not come in this house telling me that a white person is holding you back from something that you need to do. Hmm. You, if you need to get it, you get in that room because the books are in that room. And you get to get it done. Uh-huh. And see, she, they couldn't almost dare think like that in, in Charlottesville. Her folks, as I say, my grandmother, it was her folks that moved to Iowa. Yeah. But she, as grandmother said, we didn't know anything about any segregation. Yeah. All she knows is Iowa. Yeah. And the fact that you can be a doctor. There's black doctors in Buxton, Iowa, not just white doctors, all, you know, the whole thing. So they, in, in a generation, were hardly a generation. Yeah. We went from a slave mentality, if you will, mm-hmm. to, whoa, your brain is as good as anybody else's. Get after it right. mentality. Never met a harder worker. Uh-huh. Ask grandmother. She says, how did, you, how did you make it? She says, good, hard work uh-huh. and lots of it. <laughs> So it isn't about waiting around for somebody to give you something, uh-huh. but the way now they saw that the way was now open, and you could now take it. Take step it. Through the door. You better believe it, and not in hate, uh-huh. in love. Yeah, I, I think very few people would think of Iowa as a as a beacon of diversity. Amen. Um, That's and, right, especially now. Yeah. Um, there is a flux. There's an ebb and flow to culture and history. Yeah, yeah, but um, it definitely sounds like I mean the role of. Your grandmother and her her philosophy of maybe not necessarily she would have called it diversity, but you know, right? But it's just getting along. It's just making sure that the everybody the golden rule, right? Yeah, a pretty simple way to say it. The golden rule, do uh-huh. under, you know that was you really didn't have to get much beyond that. Yeah. And if somebody came to the door who was hungry, you gave them something to eat. Mm-hmm. You know, because they you know they came through the depression and all that too, yeah. right? Yeah, so that's... all of these cultural elements that got that, uh, you know, we come through. And when you say now, as a young person, I don't know how old you are, but the Iowa I left 30 years ago, it, it was, well, I'll just say, w, you know, the radio stations in Des Moines, Mr. Limbaugh was just coming on radio when mm-hmm. I left to go to California. And I said at the time, nobody will accept this. He'll be gone in two weeks because this, yeah. this is toxic. What, who is this guy? He's talking bad about everybody and making all this. What is this? It, it seemed ridiculous to me. Uh-huh. And then I come back and holy moly. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. And, and, yeah. I, and I wonder as almost in an anthropological sense, how does that happen? Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. Yes, sir. There you go. So, uh, moving from your grandmother to your parents. Both of them were very musical. Your father, Ellsworth, was inducted into the Iowa Jazz Hall of Fame. Mm-hmm. He got here in 1949. Um, and your mother was just as obsessed with music, perhaps, as him. 
Until um, she became a mom. Until she became a mom. Yep. Um, but from the time you were born, you were surrounded by music. What was that like, having music as such a central part of your life growing up? The sounds, whatever's in your environment as a baby or as a, you know, you just pick. Even when you're in the womb, yeah. Oh, man. My son's a drummer. <laughs> and when my when Marsha and I we were pregnant with him, we were in a band, and I had was playing with one of the strongest drummers I've ever worked with. This guy was relentless, man. <laughs> and so, and my boy couldn't wait to start playing drums. Uh-huh. So I think there's got to be something like he got yep. definitely conditioned early. But anyway, yeah, mom and dad, mom played, um, she loved Spanish music, rumba, Latin music, and she loved uh, orchestral music. Mm-hmm. So I got to hear Ravel and, you know, all this stuff really, really early. But then dad was... Ch- doing Charlie, playing Charlie Parker stuff in the house. And all the the guys in Des Moines who were into bebop and swing were at our house playing. Uh-huh. So, you know, the kids were at the top of the stairs looking down into the family room and they're, and they're either arguing about the chord changes to the song uh-huh. <laughs> or, you know, re- working out all these things. So I started singing. That's why I started singing. Okay. Uh, and I'd sing along with orchestras because I just thought that's what you did. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and something like that. Yeah, right. So it was just mom had just graduated from college in LA when she got pregnant. LA City College. She was in the very first band that was ever on a televised football game. Ever tell every time a her first time a college ball a college game was ever televised, she was in the band at halftime. Uh-huh. Right. She talked to me a, a lot through my life about what it was like to be and in a college, you know, to be in L.A. And to, and to see all the different kids and all of the different ways people make it in the world. You know, after coming from Iowa. And I swore my kids were going to have all those experiences. Wow. So for us, it was a very eclectic, very um, deep experience. And then... I didn't even start playing music for myself though until I was in high school. It was me. It was something that the adults did, and I was observing and you know doing my little internal thing. Uh-huh. But it, it took the Beatles to get me to actually start to want to do it for myself. <laughs> That's funny. There you go. Uh, so yeah, and you you didn't always want to be a professional musician necessarily. And I I read you decided yeah. when you were a little boy that you wanted to be a writer. Mm-hmm. Um, how did you become interested in telling stories? as a reporter rather than as a musician? Um, Wow. Uh, Telling stories. I wanted to be a writer because Clark Kent was a writer. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, really, it seemed cooler to be Clark Kent than to be Superman. Because he was telling, you know, he was going out there and finding stuff out. And Uh and I'm a curious kind of guy. So that always had great attraction. But then, uh, and, and it became a thing. I mean, I became very passionate about wanting to be a reporter. Well, it just so happened that in Des Moines, uh, we had the Des Moines Register, and at that time, it was one of the very finest newspapers in the world. The only the only domestic newspaper getting more Pulitzer Prizes at the point uh, in the late sixty, say sixty four till seventy, was the New York Times. Huh. So, I decided that I I wanted to I'll do anything to work in the newspaper business. So I walked up to the Register and said. What can I do? And it turned out to be right in the middle of a football 
editing session on a Saturday when all the states, all the colleges and all the high schools were uh-huh. playing football and reporters were flying in with video and audio and Trying pictures. To make the deadlines. Oh, Jesus. It was crazy. So I walked in at that moment and it just seemed like, this is heaven. <laughs> this is where I want to be. Uh-huh. And Leighton House, the editor, then said, hey, uh, I asked if there was anything to do. He said, well, come back tomorrow and we'll see. And I did. And I ended up being on sports phones. But the nice thing about it, I was, here was Bill Bryson and a bunch of the great writers who I got a chance to look over their shoulder uh-huh. and ask questions to. So that was the real gift. Yeah. Yeah. Learning from the guys who were the best. And then they learned how to get tell stories and how to and how to social engineer okay mm. we've heard about social engineering in the digital world yeah but it's kind of a variation of that where you're getting a story and you know that this country this company or whatever there's something they're trying to hide well okay the boss isn't going to tell me but if i call the secretary <laughs> <laughs> right and so that was how good reporters mm. figured out how to to find out what other people didn't want them to find out uh-huh. and knowing those things is invaluable in life no never mind working for newspapers right yeah so at the register you were the only african-american on the editorial staff for a while yeah yeah um so you became general assignment reporter after mlk's assassination yes yeah that's um very interesting time for a lot of us uh when i say us as black uh journalists in the united states ed bradley from 60 minutes saying he had the same experience um so I was working in the sports department and um, didn't have any really big assignments yet. So when Martin was killed back in April, this is at 68, um, the editor came up to me. I was on the sports phones and he asked me, would I want to help cover this story? And I said, what's going on? And he says, well, the white reporters do not feel comfortable going into the neighborhood the way it is now. Uh-huh. And then... So that was the deal. Like, hey, dude, you can put eyes on and get the story. Do you want the opportunity? And if you want to be a journalist, you're not worrying about whether you're black or white. Mm-hmm. You're, you're worrying about when am I going to get an opportunity? Yeah. And that was it. Same with Ed Bradley. Same with a bunch of guys around the United States at that, that particular time. They got an opportunity to actually report on the biggest story of the day. Yeah. And depending on how you covered it, well, from then, that's how I became a, a police reporter and yeah. general assignment and led to a bunch of other st- cool stuff. Yeah. And then eventually you were working concurrently at the Drake newspaper where you went to school, university, and the Des Moines Register. Which, and then and then trying to be a student and yes. music. And then, geez, yes. Louise. It's not surprising that like when I go through... The list of all the things that you've done in your life, it, it started early where you were trying to do way too many things. But Yeah, it was weird because, you know, you, you, when you're at the kid the, at a banquet and you don't know when to say no. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, I mean, this was interesting. I'd gotten a full scholarship to Drake. Okay. So, um, and then I also, I had a full scholarship, which then uh, from an insurance company, which I had a job working for an insurance company. Then my passion was to be a journalist, and I had walked on at the register. So mm-hmm. I had that gig, the sports editor of the Times Delphic at the same time. Oh, yes, and also the Vietnam War is going, right. and I'm not sure if I would get drafted or not. Uh-huh. And let's get out in here on the commons and protest with everybody else because we know this is wrong. Uh-huh. So there's a lot of stuff. <laughs> there's a lot going on. Yeah. 
And then uh, you talked about this. You went from covering the news to being the news. In an, uh, you were arrested for yes. possession of marijuana, a little bitty half-smoked joint, and you weren't even the one who smoked that. That's <laughs> right. <laughs> How did that experience impact you, though? Wow, wow. That's right, because the thing was about the size of my little my thumbnail. Uh-huh. But, of course, you know. It doesn't matter to the police. That's right. Oh, my God. Back then, oh, my God. So it impacted me bec- uh, in ways that actually... I can only now mm. talk about and articulate yeah. because the the shame of that instance was crushing. I mean, you're used to like having kind of an unbroken string of sort of successes and people trust you and this, that, and the other. You're, you're known, you know, all of that sort of thing. And then this happens, and the next thing you know, you're part of the system mm-hmm. in that way. And uh, you, you know what it meant for my folks and everything. So it was a, it was like a trial by fire, most certainly, because I, it, it, staying in school after that, did not seem logical, mm-hmm. because here I am trying to be a media person, news, news person, and you know back, this is, back then, there was no thought of you becoming part of the story. Or part of you know you're anonymous. You're writing, uh-huh. but you're not. Uh-huh. There's nothing else out here. Well, yeah, hell, yeah. I you know that was practically front page news when I got arrested. So I my own internal quality control said, dude, you just smoked it. You can't do that. You, uh-huh. you know you can't you can't do that anymore. Right. Now that's not necessarily true, but that's what I thought, and I was holding myself to a standard that oh okay. So then that's when I understood Brown's law of falling up. Because in thinking it was over and knowing it was over and thought, oh, that's it, the, I was basically relegated to playing music. Uh-huh. But in my secret world of that's what, you know, that's what I was going, yeah, I get to play music. Uh-huh. And the scene and the, guy, the guys and gals that were playing at that time, and I don't, you know, the 60s, late 60s, was amazing. It was the most amazing time for for music, uh-huh. uh, for people coming together. So, so I died almost literally died to the world of being a journalist, mm-hmm. but was reborn into the world of being a musician. Yeah, and because of everything that was in my heritage of music, which was sort of lying there dormant but unused. Yeah, as soon as I picked up a bass and got with the guys and started jamming, it just like it all came forth, and I was. We were we were the ones helping make the scene happen. Yeah, yeah. So your father had not been present in your life for a while at this point. Yep. And you decided to try to reconnect with him, and you did eventually go out. Well, you first you called him, uh, and but then you went out and visited him. Um, is that reconnection with your father part of what made you focus more on music again? Wow, very good. Um, I. Not really, in that sense. What, you know, a father is a much deeper connection than, it's deeper than any activity, you Mm. know, music and all that. Mm. And when mom and dad got divorced, that was what, 1961 or so, right? So, and so he was here and then he wasn't here. And I didn't, and didn't see him for quite a while. So I was running on the energy that I had had, but then by the time 1969, 70 got here, it was like, whoa, wait a minute, because I, I didn't exactly, couldn't put my finger on what was wrong. Mm-hmm. Maybe he will have the answers. Yeah. Very primal, just like, you know, trout swim back upstream every uh-huh. year. It's that kind of a thing. So 
Uh, and I believe that's it, that's such a important thing, especially now as a teacher. I see so many kids today, and, and again, whether or not it's in a poor inner city school or a rich uh, private school, and I've been teaching for two decades now in both, in inner city schools or exclusive pri- private schools, and in both cases, if if father is too busy or just not there, whatever way that sh- shakes out, the the kid's still going to be in pretty much the same circumstances. Uh-huh. And so, um, when it happened to me, something tripped that's that told me, "Wow, if I'm ever if I ever have this example or if they ever have this opportunity, I'm not going to do it this way." Uh-huh. When my father and I got back together, it was. Very momentous in the first meeting. Went to went to I went to New York and and he took me out to the clubs and introduced me to a bunch of I mean great players. I mean amazing some of the some jazz legends. Uh-huh. He, that's that's what he had been. That's what he did. Yeah. And that was great, but that was not enough to sustain a true father son relationship. That's uh-huh. just like kind of star stuff or whatever. Like, oh, cool, Dad. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then, more importantly, and sort of, I guess, sadly, but reality is that in missing all that time, I had created my own value system, Mm -hmm. my own kind of stability system. Yeah. I'd already, you know, I knew about, I was already devoted as far as practicing or trying to, my, you know, my, my grandmother and my family instilled the the drive to excel, uh-huh. so that was already happening. I already had that. I didn't need that. Yeah. So it's almost as we reached a point of there's going to be a distance here because there's something that's missing. Yeah. Didn't mean we didn't respect each other. Uh huh. But and it didn't certainly didn't mean we couldn't play music together because we did. Mm-hmm. It was cool. But at the same time, you know that really that taught me something that with my own son I would never let that happen. Uh-huh. And so um, when his mother and I separated and there was an opportunity for me to not be in his life, that's why I became a teacher uh-huh. because he was in a school and I knew that he wasn't getting along too well. So I quit my job. I had a Silicon Valley marketing gig for a while in the nineties uh-huh. and I quit that to be a, uh, what twenty three grand a year computer geek at my kid's school? Uh-huh. Just so I could be in the same building with him. Uh-huh. That was the start of it. It was the best thing I had ever <laughs> done in my life. Wow! Yeah, because we've never, we've never been separated. And now he's playing tonight. I, he was supposed to be here with Grinnell with me to play this week. Yeah. But he is playing in Memphis tonight with the Greg Tardy uh, trio. Greg is a, one of the f- finest uh, al- uh, tenor saxophonists in the world. Used to work with Elvin Jones. And uh, the, their group has been playing together like 15 years. And they've got a major concert tonight in Memphis. Okay. So that's okay, son. We'll, <laughs> we'll get it together. Uh-huh. <laughs> So you've been an educator, a newspaper reporter. You worked in the tech sector in California. Yeah. All in addition to your musical career. In which of those environments do you really feel at home or like you found your people? Woo, music. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I mean the camaraderie. Because uh, to me music is, a, especially the music that we play, the jazz, the significance of the music is is often, often, more often than not lost in 
our society because the fine points of art and society are so often sort of like pushed aside and all. But it's a perfect sport. Mm. It's physical. It's emotional. It's intellectual. It has uh, science involved. There's a huge amount of history involved in this in the music. It's the most perfect <laughs> thing I can think of for me to be doing, uh-huh. and it's it allows me to enrich not only my own life but the lives of you know my students and the people who come to see us, and it's just a, a it's a great way to approach reality. Uh-huh. Yeah, that is. Perfect sport. I've never thought of it that oh, way. Oh yeah, I'm, it's, it's, <laughs> I play a lot of sports, but I'm, music is not uh, a sport that I usually play. But I, I guess I'm I'm on the sidelines usually cheering everybody else. Yeah, there on, you go. There you go. Somebody's got to be there too. Dive in. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Um, so you thinking about the influences of your music? There are a lot of people who've been mentors to you, but I think most musicians might say that their music is also inspired by their life. Uh, and by mm. things that maybe mm-hmm. you're not even conscious of, experiences from childhood, thoughts and ideas that you're wrestling with, whether good or bad, that's kind of what comes out in the music sometimes. So where do you feel like your music comes from, and what does it mean to you, if you can put it into words? Wow. It kind of depends. I guess I can say it depends on what it is I'm writing. Okay. Tonight, uh, you will hear some of my electronic music, Mm -hmm. too. Uh, And I've been working with oscillators, filters, and and, uh, modulators, and (laughs) synthesizers since they were invented, practically. Uh In the 70s, I started working with them. And some of the pieces that I do, they're almost like large when you go to the museum, and you'll see the large... Larger pieces on at a, at the art gallery. Yep, that's how I view my electronic works. Okay, yeah, they're they're almost like there's something to be absorbed. There's almost for me there's a healing aspect to them because of the tones that I that I use. Often it's it's about vibrations. We're all everything in Earth is vibrations, mm. and so everything has vibrations that are sympathetic or not. And I'm often I'm constantly on the quest to find sounds and vibrations that are healing to people or motivating the people um jazz is yeah i mean you know What's not to like about that? No, and no words necessary for that that says it all. <laughs> yeah, really. That's that's Jazz is what I am. I was born into it, so it's almost... I dare not think about too much about how it happens. Uh-huh, yeah. <laughs> and you can't when you're up there, you know, if you're improv and stuff. It's not... You're not thinking about it. You're feeling it. Well, yeah, and, and of course, the, the thing with music... In the learning aspect was learning about the materials for all the music majors out there, the major seven chords, the minor seven chords, the diminished seventh chords, the, you know, the augmented chords. You practice all that stuff. You put about, what was it Malcolm Gladwell says, 10,000 hours? Uh-huh. Put that in, then it becomes yours, yep. and then you can deal with it how you wish. Yeah. So. Okay, so you might want to smack me for this, but in my limited experience, <laughs> which is mostly from going to concerts, it seems like bass players are always kind of the awkward ones. I don't know if it's because of the size of the guitar or the way you have to hold it, 
but you can't move like you can with a with a smaller guitar, and you kind of stand there all all awkward like. And I haven't seen you play. That's so right. Maybe you'll change my mind tonight. But what are your what are your thoughts about that? Good. Well, it depends. For me, all the movement aspect kind of depends on who I'm playing with. If I'm with a band, uh-huh. then. You'll see me jumping around a lot, especially if the drummer's funky. Uh huh. Oh yeah, we get it. You know, the '70s, '78 through it was a beautiful time uh-huh. because that's people all people wanted to dance, and disco yet wasn't necessarily a dirty word. <laughs> and um, no, and we I had a great drummer, drummers and bass players. Man, we we made it rock. So that's, but um, when I play upright bass, uh-huh. you know, and or depending on what it is, yeah, I'm kind of. Stationary, yeah. yeah. Have to be. Yeah. So the, the title of your essay in Rootstock is My Integrated Life, and obviously there are multiple connotations of the word integration, as, as you talk about. Um, <clears throat> but it strikes me that your careers have been really integrated. On its face, it might seem like tech sector, education, journalism, music are mm-hmm. kind of you know disparate and maybe wouldn't make for seamless integration, but you've really incorporated your work from each of them into kind of who you are. Yes. So how do you think about all the different experiences you've had in channeling them in in the various kind of parts of your life and different modes that you experience Good. things? Good question. Wow. Nice going. Um, R. Buckminster Fuller, do you know who that is? I, I know it because I read your essay. <laughs> okay. Well, R. Buckminster Fuller, great American uh, theorist, uh, scientist, um, um, inventor, the geodesic dome, uh, uh, he, that's his, okay. uh, Dymaxion, D-Y-M-A-X-I-O-N, Dymaxion thinking, that's him. He was what, the, what you call a comprehensivist. He came out of Navy thinking and, and sailor thinking, world around water thinking. When you're in the 13th, 14th century, 15th century, and you're in a boat and you're, you've left land, you got to be pretty brave, mainly because most of your countrymen think that it, when you get to the horizon, you're going to fall off. Right. <laughs> and once you got out there in the middle of the ocean, you had to be really good at labor relations. Because if you didn't and you pissed off the crew, you'd get mutinied. Right. You had to be also really good at materials and understanding if I got a hole in the sail or a hole in the deck or something, what am I going to use to fix it? Right. You also got to know how to defend yourself. I mean, it was so that idea of being a comprehensivist, you had to be able, you had to know the stars. Uh-huh. So in the 60s, after Sputnik, Specialization that seemed like they wanted you to you specialize in something. Yeah. Meanwhile, Buck, Bucky was saying, "No, man, it's, you have to be a comprehensivist." Uh-huh. And the, being a comprehensivist attracted me. Being good at a lot of things. Yeah. And seeing the actual organic connections between those things. Music. Okay. Hey, music isn't everything. So once I found out you can make music with circuits, whoa. Uh-huh. Yeah, let's go. Right. And so then and then that led you to the whole thing of understanding how microprocessors work. And then that led you to the understanding of uh the languages, how computer, you know, how do you talk to the machine? Mm-hmm. And then the people that talk to the machine, that's a whole different crew of people. In uh-huh. fact, Bob Noyce, Grinnell's yeah. famous for the first the one, one of the first guys that ever thought this way. Uh-huh. 
And I mean, it's again a cross pollinization of cultures, mm-hmm. of ideas, of of modalities of of living and looking at reality. Yeah. It's just yeah. incredibly fun. I just that's the thing, which again. <laughs> it is nice f- to see the the connections materialize. Yeah, 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 yeah. See, which again goes back to to grandma man saying no, 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 no. Get them books. <laughs> Understanding that the education was the real freedom. Uh-huh. See now, it's almost being education is that is the truth. But now in America or maybe in the world, God knows. The, the the admission scandal, the mm-hmm. college admission scandal. Yeah. Wow, man. The one of the schools I taught at, one of the high schools, the private forty five thousand dollar a year high schools I taught at, had a couple of parents that got caught up in that. Really? Yes, sir. <laughs> but they wouldn't have gotten caught up in it if the the whole education thing is now turning into a sellable thing versus, hey, no, we're going here to, to enrich our minds. Thank God uh-huh. Grinnell is still, man, I'm telling you what, since I've been here on campus, I'm very impressed because the philosophy of what education is supposed to be still lives here. Mm-hmm. It is, despite, I see all the new buildings going up and all that, and I know <laughs> it takes money to do that, but the class sizes are still the same. The student, the faculty ratio, which is the key deal, mm-hmm. is still the same, and there's still that going on. You can't do that at Iowa State. You're not going to get that done in U of I anymore. You could have done that in days past, yeah. but the way the legislature here in Iowa now is toying with the university and the Des Moines and the public school system here is criminal to me. Yeah. As an Iowan, I'm offended by uh-huh. what they do. But I haven't been here that long, but we're getting started. We're active. And uh, this will change. Uh, you, The students of Iowa, hang in there. The teachers of Iowa, hang in there. Yeah. You have support. People are with you. We just have to get them mobilized. Mm-hmm. There you are. Okay, so you've lived quite a life so far, and you've got more life to live, mm-hmm. more more Hall of Fame inductions than I have fingers to count, and that's just <laughs> in one of your careers. Um, but there's a saying that I've I've heard, and it's always kind of resonated with me. It's wherever you go, there you are. And to me, it's kind of like we all have dreams of what we want to be, goals of accomplishing certain things, whether we want to be a reporter for the Des Moines Register or a you know rock star, and then. If and when we do achieve those things, Whoa. there we are. Yeah. You know, you've got to set new ones, or it's it's almost a little bit of grass is greener on the other side as well. Once you get there, so in a roundabout way, what I'm really asking is, kind of what keeps you going now that you've done so much. Um, well, this isn't visual aid time because we're on a podcast here. <laughs> Use <your laughs> but if voice. I showed you the pictures of the the uh, students I'm working with now uh-huh. uh, as a teaching artist in uh, Des Moines schools. If you, again, kids from all around the world, so diverse, so beautiful. That's what's keeping me from being a, you know, an old curmudgeon uh-huh. you know, guy because they're bringing, they're bringing spirit, they're bringing pure life to you and in helping them realize what they're all about, it is, it's killer. It's, a, it's an amazing amazing process um i'd say you know i'm 70 really near 70 here in october which is freaking me out to even say it because <laughs> the last time i looked up i was like 38 uh-huh. right that's the, the thing once you have all these opportunities uh, 
you know, it's like oh, none of these things were about watching the clock. It was yeah. just like you get headlong into it, and three years would go by before you look up and see, oh, what's the next assignment? Uh-huh. Being in California during the 90s, George Lucas uh, was bringing, and the guys who wrote Photoshop, right, the original original version of Photoshop, which was on floppy disks. <laughs> I was working at the Macintosh sales store in George Lucas's neighborhood when Tom Knoll, the guy, the original writer of the program, brought it to us and said, hey, guys, play around with this and tell me what you think. Uh-huh. All right? And to see all the, you know what MIDI is? No. Okay, MIDI, M-I-D-I. Okay. The Musical Instrument Digital Interface. Okay. That's how computers talk to music keyboards, hmm. right? Synthesizers and all that, and sequencers, you know, uh, EDM is, yeah. you know, all that stuff. Uh, so that was a revelation because then I can do this, but then something will happen over there. And so now instead of having a band of humans, I now have my band of droids essentially, <laughs> right? And they do what I say. Yeah. And now just what I said there, Think of the implications, everybody, of what I just said. Instead of having to have a band, like in the 60s, that was the, the lingua franca, the gold standard. You were in a band with human beings, right. and you guys were getting after it. By 90, that was gone, was diminished, because technology, MIDI, came in and allowed one guy to, to be all. the whole band. Uh-huh. Now, that's a cool, you know, cool thing. Yeah. But it has implications for the society and the mm-hmm. culture around it. That's what—that's the takeaway of this today, kids. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. it's not not just uh, specific uh, to the music industry either. That's uh, everything. Don't yeah. get me started on Facebook. <laughs> I won't. I'll, I'll I'll stop there. So, thank you, D'Artagnan, so yeah. much for coming to Grinnell and sharing your wonderful story with us, and for coming to perform tonight in what will be your first performance in Iowa in a long, long time. Thank you, and boy, thanks to John Andelson too, and all the guys at Rootstock, and all the people here at Grinnell. I am loving this campus, and we'll see you tonight. We hope. Sounds good. did indeed see him, and he put on a memorable show. A little sampling of his life, his father's music, some of his early stuff with the Chase Band, and then his electronic audioscapes. If you check out the podcast webpage, I've got links to D'Artagnan's music, his personal website, and a beautiful essay series he wrote for Rootstock, the journal of the Center for Prairie Studies here at the college. It's called My Integrated Life, and he tells his story better than I ever could, so I encourage you to check that out. D'Artagnan's story and music resonates with me in so many ways, but his quest for solidarity and connection is what really sticks. And it feels very apt, given his family's history in the coal mine town of Buxton. I can't say for sure, but I bet those miners had some songs to share. Solidarity can be hard to find in a seemingly fundamentally divided society, but we have to seek it out and nurture it wherever we can find it. To that end, I've also got some resources from D. For Iowans looking to find solidarity and work to make some positive change. Newspapers and organizations like Iowa Citizens for Community Improvement. Check them out on the webpage. That's it for this episode. On the next episode, we'll talk to the artist Jean-Ric Desert, who joins us to discuss creative responses to racism, something urgently needed right now. Music for today's show comes from Brett Newski and D'Artagnan Brown. If you want to get in touch with the podcast, email me at podcast at grinnell.edu. 
make sure you subscribe to the show to get new episodes when they come out. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, pass it along to a friend and take care. I'm your host, Ben Minversi. Stay weird and keep working towards a better world, people.